We begin today's communion study by traveling in our minds to a geographic location. About a hundred miles off of the southern tip of Greece, you will find the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea, known as the island of Crete. And the part that rises above the sea is approximately 160 miles east to west, and stretching at its furthest distance in its width about 37 miles. You may not recall this off the top of your heads, but once I point you to the passage, you will then remember that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 11, we learned that Jews from the island of Crete, known as Cretans, heard the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Whether or not any were converted to faith in Christ on that occasion is left unsaid. And so we don't have a direct historical statement corresponding to Cretan Jews being present at Pentecost and how it came about that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was established on this island in the Mediterranean Sea. Absent that being a possible set of happenings by which the gospel got to this island, that is, through Jews being present at Pentecost, it is probably most likely that the Apostle Paul, perhaps in company with Titus on some occasion, was instrumental in the establishing of the churches in Crete. But we do not know exactly when that happened, if that indeed was how the providence of God got the gospel to this island and began to establish churches there. What we do know is that about the year AD 63, the Cretan churches received serious spiritual attention in the form of both a personal visit from Titus, one of Paul's understudies, servant of the Lord, in the service of his Lord Jesus Christ, and helping the Apostle Paul to extend the effect of his own ministry. But even more basic than the arrival of the person of Titus, this serious spiritual attention that came to the Cretan churches was in the form of a letter from the Apostle Paul. A letter that we could call without too much of a stretch, the epistle of Paul to the Cretans. You know it as Paul's letter to Titus. As we will discover, one of the central concerns of this letter that Paul writes to the Cretans is what we can appropriately term as the behavior of Christ's body. Now, I think when we hear that title, it does us well to reflect on the meaning that that could point to. Indeed, the original meaning that that idea does point to. When we describe the Lord Jesus Christ, his ministry, the effect that he had when he was here on earth, walking and living among men and representing the Father, when we think of his perfections, when we think of his example, we don't typically term it as the behavior of Christ's body. But as a matter of fact, 
That's a perfectly legitimate way of reflecting upon the whole life of Christ and why it was so wondrous and glorious and how it has left us an example that we are to follow. Indeed, it's a principle of the scriptures that our bodies, our physical bodies, should be sanctified to the service of God. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 exhorts us to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Romans 12 and verse 1 exhorts us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And among the things that Jesus exemplifies is certainly the very direct sanctifying of his body to the service of his Father, being obedient in all of his life, in his emotions, in his conscience, in his tongue, in his thoughts, in his attitudes, in his motives, but also, very literally, being obedient with his body unto death, even the death of the cross. So if we take up this title and we reflect on the behavior of Christ's body, it is edifying to observe that as it was with Jesus, there wasn't a finger, there wasn't an ear, there wasn't an eye, there wasn't a toe, there wasn't a limb, there was no inner organ of his, his heart, his gut, that was ever outside of the will of God, that was ever disobedient, that was ever going astray, that was ever in the service of some will apart from God's, being it the world's will, being it the evil one's will, being it Jesus' personal will itself. It was always in the service of Almighty God. The behavior of Christ's body, just taking that title very literally, is a beautiful example for us to follow. But I think you will recognize with me, if we wish to speak about the person and life of Christ, under the title of the behavior of Christ's body, and we recommend that you follow Christ, follow his body, follow his example, watch him as he moves throughout the streets of Galilee, as he speaks and interacts with people, as he prays, as he speaks, as he deals with opposition. Watch this individual, watch the person, Jesus Christ. Watch the behavior of Christ's body so that we can learn what the Father wants us to see we recognize that we are meaning not simply what his hands, what his feet, what his eyes, what his ears, what his heart, the literal organ does, but we mean what does his person do? We have some descriptions of what the behavior of Christ's body amounted to. We must remind ourselves that the Apostle John says that if everything was written relative to Jesus and his example, and the glory of his person, and the beauty of his behavior, if we were to speak sufficiently so as to give you the full effect of all that Jesus manifested in terms of Christ-like character, in terms of godliness, why the, the books that should be written, the world itself would not be able to contain. And so, at all occasions, we must satisfy ourselves with summarial statements. And this afternoon, since we have an additional objective to get to once we establish the thought of the behavior of Jesus, the person, 
Jesus when he was in his body on this earth. For that reason, we are going to be somewhat direct in describing Jesus' body, Jesus' person, Jesus' character, his behavior. As a matter of fact, a description of the behavior of Christ's body, that which you would normally think about as simply the description of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, in his incarnation, when he was here among men. A description about this was a point of evangelism. It was a point of preaching. When the apostles went about to various locations to declare the gospel, one of the things that they lit up was the distinct, unique, and beautiful behavior of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The behavior of this particular warm body, this particular child that was born in a manger and grew up in Nazareth and then came out into public awareness and his body moved around and people could watch what he did and listen to how he spoke and how he conducted himself in manifold circumstances. It was a part of what they preached about. Take, for example, what Peter says in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 37. He says that word, ton logon, that message, I say, you know, which was published, uangalizo. It's the verbal form of to evangelize. It was published, this word, throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How? God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And this is what his body did. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses. We witness to this as part of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus' body. No, not the physical appearance, but the nature of his character, the person that was within that body, the beauty of the eternal Lagos. This is the glory that John and the apostles beheld when they saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his body in action. Peter says, and we are witnesses of all things which he did. One could pause and say, suppose that was said of either you or me. Would it be something to evangelize about? Let's talk about all the things that this particular individual did throughout the course of his or her life. But as it relates to Jesus, we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Let's take that last remark of Peter's. They in Jerusalem, a location within which Jesus expended a lot of effort to reach the hearts of not only the populace, but indeed the very Pharisees, the religious institution and leaders. But within this space that Jesus poured his heart into and sought to minister to, and as we heard in the body ministry today, visited as a young child at the tender age of 12 and brought only love and kindness and consideration and, and sweetness and warmth within his father's house. It was in that same location where Jesus was arrested, where he was unjustly condemned and brutally crucified. Let's take as a sample of the behaviors of Christ's body, 
what occurred on that occasion. And note with me how distinct his body is. Yes, I do mean how distinct his behavior is, but it will do you well to think of the actual body as well. I am not saying you have to envision Jesus in some actual character traits of color of eyes and size and shape of face and visage and all that. But remember that Jesus is in the flesh. God sent the body of his son to dwell among us and to show us what godly behavior looks like. And so we will take the behavior of Christ's body while he's hanging on the cross. And we will read these remarks from Luke's gospel in the 23rd chapter, the 33rd and 34th verse. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, the place of a skull, you know it also by the Hebrew Golgotha, there they crucified Jesus and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. If you envision that scene as described, you not only know that Jesus' body is distinct as being in the middle, But you were just told that there's a malefactor on the left and there's a malefactor on the right. But in contradistinction to them, in the middle of this, there is Jesus' body. And what is his body doing? In verse 34, we read that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you know that that occurred in concert with Jesus' body. His lips spoke those words. To the extent that his visage could communicate the sentiment and motive of his heart, there would have been kindness, there would have been earnestness, there would have been love alongside of a godly grief and sorrow about the presence of sin and the works of sin and what they amount to. But nonetheless, in the language that came out of his lips, you would notice in this particular body, let's say, for example, you were a Roman soldier and you didn't see him as we know him to be, the Lord of glory in human nature, including a physical body and a rational soul. You're looking at the malefactors, They're conducting themselves in whatever way they may be. For example, we know that they spake against Jesus and they both initially gave him unkind words for his ears to hear, though we know one eventually repented. But you would be beholding their bodies and their conduct and the look of their face. But when you looked on Jesus' body, I think if it was at all possible for human eyes to detect, given the marring of his visage, what was within his spirit, you would see a certain serenity. Even alongside Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, you would still see that there's a grief, but there's a calmness. There's a non-personal aggravation coming out of him. There's just a seeking for the communion of God and a struggle in the midst of his desire to love his father with all his heart. But most distinctly, you would hear him say, as no doubt was heard because it's recorded here. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of the characterizations of Jesus' life is that he was compassionate. I wish to give you 
an occasion within which he manifested this compassion as we round out a little bit about the behavior of Jesus' body. In Mark chapter 1, a leper who, as you know, by Jewish law, was to be quarantined, was to be distanced from the populace. I'm not stating that the leper was breaking those restrictions. I don't think that it would have mattered a great deal to Christ because the law was made for man and not man for the law. That is to say, the one who gave the law is standing there. And if in some way or another, the deeper purposes of these laws can be met through the exercise of faith and the operations of God, then you're reaching the very point of the law itself in the first place. But we read in verse 40 of Mark chapter 1 that there came a leper to Jesus beseeching him, kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, you can make me clean. And it's not just the realization within Christ that he has the power to do it, that this is an occasion, let's say, to manifest his glory. The scriptures indicate that the core of what motivated Christ, what brought about the result of this healing, this miracle, this blessing that was passed from him to a needy human being, was rooted in being moved by compassion. And he put forth his hand and he touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. There's an awful lot that is, pa- that is packed into that account as it relates to all the things that Jesus looked beyond in terms of the possible accusations that would come his way, the misunderstandings, the safeguarding of his reputation, even in the natural, the possibility of incurring leprosy himself. There's so many things that are packed into that account about the behavior of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So many things that men could watch as they watch this particular body, the body that belonged to Jesus of Nazareth, whom the Father purposely sent to tabernacle among us so we could watch this body and see that this body is showing us how God wishes to minister to the needy humans that populate the earth. On another occasion, also found in Mark's Gospel, now in the sixth chapter, toward the close of Jesus' second year of public ministry, he had recently sent out the twelve on a trial trip a training exercise within which they went into some of the cities of Israel to share the gospel as they then knew it. But we find that in verse 31 of Mark chapter 6, after they return from their missionary exercises, that is the 12, he says unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place. We learn from Luke's gospel in the ninth chapter that it was, as a matter of fact, near Bethsaida, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. This in itself is an expression of consideration, an expression of compassion, an expression of awareness. It is indeed beyond that an expression of sensibility, an expression of balance and wisdom. All of these things were seen in the activities of Jesus' body when he was on the earth. But as we continue to read, we discover yet another depth of Jesus' compassion being manifested beyond the depth we're already seeing in sending out the twelve in his own public ministry, beyond the sympathy that he has for them as they return and saying, well, let's take a break for a little bit. You could probably use a break. 
and I understand that, and something like, that's okay with me, let's do it together. So we read in verse 32, and they departed into a desert place by ship privately, or so they thought, and the people saw them departing. You could say the multitudes saw them departing. And many knew Jesus, and it was something about his body, something about his person that was so attractive that they ran afoot thither out of all the cities and they outwent them and came together onto him. Evidently, they discerned the likely location where he was headed by one means or another and they outran, outmaneuvered, outshipped, whatever they did, it's telling you they got there before Jesus even arrived himself. And Jesus, when he came out, came out of the ship, he saw much people. Now, what was the purpose for getting in this boat privately and going to a deserted place? It was to take a break for himself and for his disciples. And if you're going to observe the behavior of Jesus' body, you're going to observe this God-man who is living a true human life in public ministry, and you're going to observe a person who just told his disciples, let's get in a ship. I'm basically promising you, effectively, if promise is too strong of a word for technical analysis of what's transpiring, I'm fine with that. But what I'm stating is, we're talking about Jesus' body. We're talking about what happened in real time when he was in whatever height he stood at, when he was in whatever tone of skin was his When his eyes looked a certain way in his mouth and visage, he communicated and said, let's get apart and take a break for a bit. They get in the ship, they go to the other side, and he's not the only one looking for a break. The 12 are as well, but Jesus changes what the narrative is going to be here. If you want to say he changed his mind, I don't know how you want to articulate it, but I'll tell you what we're told. It says he was moved with compassion toward the multitude, because they were as sheep having no shepherd. You're looking at an individual who is seeking to balance out the very real needs of the limitations of the present human instrument for ministry, namely our physical bodies. But he's seeking to balance that over against the compassion he feels for the depth and the breadth of the need that is before him. They were as sheep having no shepherd. And you could almost say he couldn't help himself. He began to teach them many things. And if you know your Mark chapter 6 chapter well, you'll know with me that this transitions into the feeding of the 5,000. These individuals were, were so captured by his teaching ministry that they stayed late into the evening and there was no readily available way by which they were to be fed. And so Jesus feeds them miraculously. Well, the accounts could be multiplied, touching the beautiful characteristics of Jesus' person, the behavior of Christ's body. We'll finish up this section by relaying to you some of the statements from Jesus' own lips as it relates to what his motives were. What was going on in this Christian body named Jesus? How was this body thinking? What kind of personality was this body manifesting to others. In John 5 and verse 30, he says, I do not seek my own will. But it's useful for us to pay attention to what he then goes on to say. 
For it is possible for us to decide that some set of behavior that we're doing, for one reason or another, we're going to stop it because it's just not working. Think, for example, of an alcoholic who is ruining his home and just through sheer realization that he's going to lose his entire family and life and health, decides, I'm not going to seek my will and go to the liquor store or go to the bottle any longer. He might even decide, I'm going to go to AA and find somebody to help me to regulate myself, get my behavior somehow in check. But that isn't what Jesus did. And that's not what Christians are supposed to do. Jesus said, I do not seek my own will. That's what he resists doing. But he fills that place with something positive, something definite, something defined, something that he is self-consciously aware of. I seek the will of the Father that sent me. For ourselves, what that means is when we discover that there's some aspect of our will that either just isn't working, that can be a good hint on its own, or it's been identified as sinful, it is not sufficient for us to just simply stop that behavior. What we are to do is to seek out what is the Father's will that we should be doing as opposed to the self-will that we were doing. What is the Father's will for me to fill in where I might have done something myself that would be sinful? In John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will. But once again, I will point out, though I won't labor it at length, Jesus did not come down from heaven and give us the testimony. I'm not doing my own will. Dear brothers and sisters, we can be guilty at that, of that at times. That we're reaching the place or we think we have a testimony. Perhaps we really don't, but one of the reasons why we don't see that this isn't true, we self-deceive ourselves, is because we feel as though we can say, I'm not doing my will. But that's not what Jesus Life was all about. He didn't come down and said, I'm not going to do my will. And then whatever else he is doing, whether it's actually right or wrong, he can just say, well, this isn't exactly what I would want to do if I could do anything I wanted to. I'm not doing whatever I want to. No, Jesus came down to fill his life with something definite and positive, something outside of him, something predefined, something that anybody else can read about and discover from the word of God, I came down to do God's will, even in the garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus prays and he says, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. Have you ever reached that place in your life where you say, I have an awakened conscience to the extent that I'm realizing that I'm apt to do things that aren't right. So, Lord, Lord, help me not to do my will. Help me, Lord, not to do my will. But have you come to the place where you said, what is your will for me to do? Do you understand, brothers and sisters, if I'm conducting myself in a way that I then discover is my own will, it's not right? Do you realize that what I need to do then is go to the Word and find out what is God's will on this? Because if I do, and then I do God's will, then 
That is indisputable, isn't it? That's the answer, isn't it? It's not a question of, I'm not doing my will, and then somebody says, well, it's still not right. How can you say it's not right if I'm doing the Father's will? And I can show you from the Scriptures that this is what God tells me to do. And Jesus could do that. Will everybody recognize it? I don't know. I mean, that's a different question. But Jesus could say, we can't in the same way, but he says, which of you convinced me of sin? What is it about my life that isn't in line with the word? Well, we do have this beautiful remark that here again is found in Mark's gospel, this time in the seventh chapter. Jesus has just healed a deaf, mute man in the city of Decapolis. This is in the beginning of his third and final full year of ministry. And indeed, he's departing from the regions of Galilee and heading, as you know, through Samaria to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified toward the end of this year, this Passover year, I should say, you know, their Passover years. And we have this remark from the Galileans themselves. And you'll recall with me that there was a general cooling off toward Christ as it related to a deep and abiding attachment to Jesus' ministry. But as they observed this latest action of Jesus' body, in which he heals a man that was deaf and couldn't speak, verse 37 of Mark 7 says, they were beyond measure astonished, saying, he has done all things well. Just that phrase. He has done all things well. As it relates to the behavior of Jesus' body, Jesus himself. Dear brothers and sisters, there you have it. He did all things well. May I encourage you to remember that phrase as it relates to Jesus' personal body, for it will have a bearing upon where we're going in this study. I think it is true to observe that that is effectively telling us that Jesus is like his heavenly Father. For at the end of the Heavenly Father's actions in creation, as we are told about it in the very end of the first chapter of Genesis in the 31st verse, we are told that the Father, as it were, looked upon all of his actions and he said, everything has been done well. Everything is very good. And I do believe that there is a beautiful testimony as it relates to Jesus. And here again, I would emphasize, this is our glorious Savior, the God-man. And certainly it is the eternal Logos manifesting his glory, but it also is an obedient human person by the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He was given a name. And this person we are to follow. We are to seek to be like. And when Jesus' body was in the earth, Jesus' body did all things well. Everything he did was very good. We could extend this list, couldn't we? We could talk about every, everything he touched, every person he dealt with, every piece of advice he gave, every conversation he negotiated, wherever his feet went, wherever his eyes went, wherever his ears went, wherever he slept, every piece of food that he ate or didn't eat, how he spent his time, everything he did, he did well. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says it was Christ's work to do good, and only good for the life, preservation, and welfare of man. The whole story of his life was nothing else but a catalog of good works. 
you find him everywhere going up and down upon this errand that he might give sight to the blind, limbs to the lame, health to the sick, liberty to the possessed, life to the dead. You will find him either feeding the hungry or healing the diseased and having compassion on them that are faint and raising the dead. Another author comments in this way, he was not only without sin, he exemplified every virtue and carried every virtue to its highest perfection. There were among his enemies those who were candid enough to acknowledge this. He did all things well. And in every age, witness to the righteousness, purity, and moral beauty of Christ has been borne by the unbelieving and the unspiritual. I guess you know what I'm referring to, that the behavior of Christ's body, that is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, men read about the behavior of his body and they marvel. I want to ask you a question at this moment, and that is, should that be the extent of the beauty of Jesus' life? And one might even say the nature of how the Logos is brought to the attention of men in our own time, that the only thing that we can functionally do is point them back to the Gospels and the record of Jesus' actions, and as it were, point them back to His body as it was living and conducting itself within Israel during His earthly ministry? Before you think through that entire question, let me first bring to your awareness that this body that we've been talking about is no longer here. I know you know that, but it does us well to just reflect and absorb these realities. This body ascended off of this earth. And I want to speak to you the language that is given to us in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles about Jesus' ascension. And let's begin to see if, as a consequence of His ascension, there is a new focus that necessarily takes place when we talk about or think about the behavior of Christ's body. How would that relate to any sort of thought after Jesus ascends? Well, let's take verse 8 here. Jesus is speaking, and he says, You will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Is it fair to say that Jesus is basically stating, I lived a certain life, my body conducted itself in a certain way, I had behavior that was characteristic to me, and now you are to be my witnesses. And should we think of this witness as only entailing pointing back to the Gospels, pointing back to the person of Christ, effectively saying something like, I'm nothing like that and never will be and am not even trying to for various reasons. I don't think I can. I'm not convicted enough to give it an attempt. I don't think there's enough power to transform me, but I will witness and point back to Jesus. I know he has left the earth. But I can still tell you a story, and maybe I can acquaint you with an individual who is godly, who manifests behavior that is winsome, magnetic in its own proper sense, 
as was Jesus' life. You shall be my witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. You know what that means? I understand it's his glorified body, but it's still his physical person. Amen? While Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, while he was still on this earth, people were rightly watching him, his example, his words, his conduct. He still straightened out a lot of things among the disciples, didn't he? In his glorified body, but still in his, his visible, defined presence, if you will. You know, his body. Touch this, because this is my glorified body. That body was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight, the Shekinah glory cloud. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, watching this beautiful body go up, that I might use the language embodies such wonderful character, such glorious humanity, such a wonderful brother, such a wonderful friend. I wish I could call him sister. I don't think that quite works. I don't know that I can call him father, but whatever relationship you can think of, what a wonderful participant his body was in all of those configurations. And and you almost can't blame them, although I'm going to get to it. The angels are going to, I don't know if blame them is the right term, but they're going to kind of wake them up. They're watching this beautiful body go up into heaven. Steadfastly, they're watching. And two angels stood by them in white apparel, which also said, you disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? One could say, you've got work to do. His body just left. Do you think this is the the end of Jesus' ministry? Is it the end, let's say, of his body? Do you think his body is not going to be present on the earth any longer? There's something very deep and profound about what we're looking at here. For one might say, no, we don't think that because he's going to return. The same Jesus is going to come back in the same glorified body, and he's going to be present during the millennium. He's going to bring a reign of righteousness. And once again, he's going to manifest to the earth what godly, righteous, blessed, human glorified, no doubt, but behavior looks like. But let's think about this a little bit more fully as we realize that following Jesus' ascension into heaven, there is a direct relationship between his ascension and the church's commission. Hear the language of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. He's speaking about a power. He says this power... God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Do you recognize that's ascension? So the body of the Lord Jesus, the glorified body, ascended, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. All of that is beautiful, all of that is wonderful, but you are not to finish reading in order to understand how it relates to us, if indeed it does. And so as we continue to read, he has put all things under his feet and he gave Jesus to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. 
Now, right there, we have the doctrine that I want to direct your attention to, though we will certainly enlarge upon this idea. Dear brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us that upon the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, His body leaving the earth, there is a spiritual truth that comes into play that is aptly and biblically communicated through the metaphor of a body. And as it relates to ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ, fitting into this metaphor, Jesus is the head. And the head is ascended far above all principalities and powers. That indeed is true. It is in the realm of glory, ascended before us. It's within the mind and the thought and the fullness of Almighty God, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. That's where our head is in victory, in redemption accomplished. But in terms of redemption applied, it manifests itself not only in the justification of sinners and not only in a relative sense of some degree of sanctification and not only in the sense of some degree of conformity to a better lifestyle. The spiritual truth is that the church becomes the body of Jesus on the earth. And therefore, however the church lives, it amounts to what the present display of the behavior of Christ's body is for that location, that time, within that family, within that church, within that area, within that nation, it becomes effectively, in a very real way, the behavior of Christ's body. When we are told in the 23rd verse of Ephesians 1 that the church is his body, then we are told it's the body of the one whose fullness fills all in all. This brings us back to what we recently just investigated, and that is as it relates to Jesus of Nazareth, his life was all in all. He did everything right. He did everything good. There's a measure and a stature that is the fullness of Christ. There is no dark spot. There is no wrinkle in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there is a fullness of godliness. There is a fullness of perfect human behavior in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we should be reading is that in potentia, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is given a power from the Holy Spirit to begin to truly approximate and grow into this measure and this stature and this fullness that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are to do so very pointedly, as it were. That is to say, there is a direct need for this to manifest through their bodies. Their personal presence in any situation, once again, in their homes, in their churches, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their nation, in any configuration of life. They now represent the Lord Jesus Christ in all of these situations. And while it is the case, truly, that we can't say that just because the church is called into this association with the risen Christ such that He is the head and we are the body in that He is the fullness of all in all, we don't automatically manifest the beauty of everything that Jesus was. That's why I say it's in potentia. It's potentially 
what our calling is. But we must be very much about our Father's business. We must, must be very much aware that among the high aspects of our calling, one of the very real burdens that we have, dear brothers and sisters, that we must understand, pray about, assimilate, take seriously, submit our hearts to, is that we now are manifesting the behavior of Christ's body. Whether or not people see Jesus is a function of whether or not in your life, Jesus' conduct, character, wisdom, balance, love, mercy, truthfulness, courageousness, faithfulness to God, the sum total of His beautiful, balanced, gorgeous, fullness of all life, to the extent that we grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, and manifest by the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which are the glories of Christ, to the extent, or stated differently, let me put it this way, whatever you and I are manifesting as associating ourselves with His church, we are taking up the place of His body. Jesus did say about Himself that He is the light of the world. But He also said, that's true for as long as I am in the world. John chapter 9 and verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But you know that Jesus began to illumine His disciples. He began to pass on the flame, even in His public ministry, knowing that He would not always be in this world. But they were to shine the same sacred flame off the holy altar of heaven in their own lives. And so He taught them throughout His ministry, but in particular in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. And Paul confirms this in Philippians chapter 4. And here he associates our doings, our speaking, our conduct, our behavior. And he makes the point by saying, do all things without murmuring and disputings. Now we could pause there and ask the question, did Jesus ever murmur and dispute with his parents as he was growing up in his early 12 years and on to, I guess, his 30th year, really, if you want to think about it. Was he murmuring and disputing with his father? That you might be blameless and harmless. Let's begin to associate those ideas as we're in the course of this thinking. Do we all realize that if we are blameworthy of violating some aspect of of the way in which we should be following Jesus' example. So, so for example, if we're murmurers and complainers and disputers, we're reading here that, that that's not appropriate, that's not right. That means we are blameworthy. Do you recognize that you're also harming things when that is our conduct? Is that clear? Jesus didn't harm anything. He was wise as a serpent. Amen. But he was harmless as a dove. And how would you know if the so-called wisdom of the serpent that one might have is truly the thing that Jesus is talking about, well, you know, in part, by the second part of his directive, and that is, if what you're doing is harming, then it's not wisdom. This wisdom descendeth not from above. It is earthly, sensual, demonic, and it's not something that Jesus ever participated in. Now, if we don't pay attention to these things and... We live lives that are able to be blamed. We have lots of blame on these different scores. 
It's not just that we're sinning. Certainly we can be forgiven. That's thanks be to God for that. But brothers and sisters, what is happening, one can truthfully say this, although you could never say it about Jesus' body, but you could say Jesus' body is harming itself, harming other people. Do you know that you can bite and devour and consume each other? Who would be doing that? Jesus' body, if it's a church. Do all things without murmuring and disputings that you might be blameless and therefore harmless, the sons of God without rebuke. It's a high calling. Do you agree with me? I mean, the son of God was without rebuke. I certainly cannot testify to that being true about my own life. But I do take seriously what my calling is and the, you know, the, the ministry, if you will, the, the witness that is the raison d'etre of my very existence. Do, do you recognize this? Do you realize that you're the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? And therefore your behavior becomes the behavior of Christ's body in a functional way. So depending on how you conduct yourself, that's what people think about Jesus. Would your behavior be attractive to your children or to young adults or to the community at large or to your brother and sister in the assembly? If your behavior isn't like Jesus, isn't defined by God's word, then it's blameworthy. And if it's blameworthy, it's also harmful. And it obviously is antithetical to the very real potential of what we all could be in our marriages, in our relationships, in every connection we have, do you realize that you could manifest the defined behavior of how Jesus lived and walked and talked and conducted himself? So following Jesus' bodily ascension, the idea of the behavior of Christ's body takes on a different practical focus. And I think we'll close for this afternoon with just directing you to some common language that underscores what should be obvious, that after Jesus' ascension, the whole idea of the behavior of Christ's body becomes something that we have to be concerned about. You know, if Jesus was present among us in the flesh, or let's say if you happen to be living in the first century when Jesus was walking the streets of Nazareth and Galilee and Judea, etc., you know what's sort of wonderful to think about as far as it goes? You wouldn't have to worry about the behavior of Christ's body. He was taking care of that on his own. Are you hearing me? Now, he would appreciate your prayers because he certainly asked for them. But are you hearing what I'm saying? Do you fathom that? Do you think that? Do you realize, you know, I wouldn't have to worry about what Christianity looks like, about how it's even manifested, about how anybody interacts and thinks about and fathoms what Christianity should look like because, because Jesus, he's got that. He's, he's the one who's doing it. I, I might be sloppy today, but the behavior of Christ's body is doing just fine. It's not going to fail. It's, it's always going to be wonderful and it's always available and anybody can find it whenever they want. No matter if I pray in the garden or don't pray or complain or fuss or don't listen or whatever. The behavior of Christ's body is still going to be somewhere easily discoverable as long as Jesus is around. Dear brothers and sisters, he is ascended. He's not here. We are. Even if the metaphor of a body wasn't in the Bible, 
It would seem to me it would be obvious enough that now we are his witnesses. We are the light of the world. We are called Christians. The world only knows what Jesus looks like through our life. That's a high calling, friends. Being sloppy with that. Dear brothers and sisters, that's that's wrong. A Christian won't be sloppy with how he or she reflects upon the person Jesus Christ. You hear what I'm saying? In other words, if your behavior is not like Jesus, then you're turning the behavior of Christ's body into something that it never should be. And that's not okay. The church of Jesus Christ exists to continue his witness, to continue his conduct, to continue his heart and his attitudes, his compassion, his mercy, his truthfulness, his balance, his divine order. The whole thing, it all goes together. It's a fullness. You can't pick one thing and say, well, I'm representing his love. Let's say somebody says that. No, that's a distortion of what Jesus was all about. And all of this is defined through his life and teaching. You remember we were talking earlier? I did not come to do my will. I came to do the will of the Father. The church of Jesus Christ is not an association of a battle of wills. The church of Jesus Christ is a place where everybody sets aside their wills, crucifies it happily, and seeks from the Bible, what is the definition of the will of God for me in this particular situation? And that's what I want to do. That's what I do with the joy of my heart. And you know what that begins to look like? It begins to look like the body is maturing. You know what that then looks like? It looks like there's a light going on. There's some salt that's starting to manifest in that meeting that is purifying and it's, it's affecting the lower morals, maybe like in your home, for example. You know what I mean? If I don't conduct myself in the kind of behavior that Jesus would, and I'm not particularly worried about it or sharp on it or convicted or repentant, then my life isn't going to alter the morals of my own children. It's not going to reach out to my neighbor. It's not going to help my wife. It's not going to help my brothers and sisters that I meet in other churches. And yet, as we're going to read here, if we are the church of Jesus Christ, then we are his body. I find it interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, that you could very accurately just take this sentence and attach it to the end of Acts chapter 1. After Jesus' ascension, there'd be nothing inappropriate. This is rightly dividing the word of truth. It's not a systematic theology. You know, the 66 books of the Bible are not a systematic theology. But if you systematize it and take these pieces and organize them where they fit by rightly dividing the word of truth, you could get to the end of Acts 1 where the ascension has taken place and the angels say, why are you just gazing up into heaven? You know, there goes Jesus' body. Never a man will be like him again. There's a sense in which the angels are saying, are you kidding me? He just conducted himself as an example for you to carry on his ministry. And you say, I could never do it. Wonderful. That's exactly right. That's the place to start. To the extent that Peter thought he could, he needs to repent. No, you can't. But that's not to be used as an alibi as to why he goes up to Galatians chapter 2 and starts messing the whole situation up. That's not what Jesus' body did. You know what I'm talking about? And that needed to be corrected as well as a host of other things in the early church, needed to be corrected. Why? Because we're not just an association of people that like to come together and we have some right 
in this location. We are to be the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You read in verse 27, now ye, it's plural, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Let's take with that what he says in the 12th through 14th verse of the same chapter. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body. Now, do you see the next phrase? It says, so also is Christ. Do you understand what Paul's point is there? He's saying, presently, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is mediated through his body, and whatever you are as the sum total of all these various members and whatever location you happen to be, you are Christ for that area. That's Christ. Now that he's ascended, the head is in heaven, the body is on the earth. As a matter of fact, do you understand something about this? That certainly I am to manifest the Lord Jesus as well as I'm able But the scriptures don't actually say that I am really the representative of Christ in this earth or to this church or to my family or to my children or to my neighborhood. It's not what it says. It says the church is. And there's all sorts of wisdom for this that maybe we'll touch upon in other messages. We'll see how the Lord leads. But what I'm stating is even if I was fully fulfilling all of my callings, I cannot replicate the fullness of him that filleth all in all in my individual life. And the beautiful thing that God has done, it's so wonderful if we embrace it, he has saved all of us out of sin and trespasses and deadness and the wrath of God. He has saved us out of chaos, out of darkness. He regenerates us. He brings us into one place and constitutes us as his body and then begins to teach us. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to bring about a transformation in our lives. And collectively, in the providence of God, in any particular location, collectively, the Holy Spirit will begin to construct the witness of Jesus in that place as a product of every member's spirit-filled, yielded participation in doing the will of God. It's exactly what the New Testament teaches in so many different locations. Verse 13 of chapter 12 says, For by one Spirit, here you you go, you are immersed. That means the end of you, the end of me. One Spirit, you're immersed into the body. You lose your independent identity. And you're reconstituted as a member of the body. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Whether you are bond or free, we have been all made to drink into one spirit. That shows that it's not a matter of just initially being identified with an assembly by the spirit. We have to keep up our spiritual life. We have to continue to drink in of the spirit so that we don't start filling ourselves up with ourselves. We have to empty ourselves Allow the Holy Spirit to communicate Christ in us. This is what makes us Jesus' body. As opposed to a group of people that meet under His name, but are effectively manifesting the humanity that has our names attached to it. 
And that's not what the church is. The church is to be Jesus' body. For ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. For the body is not one member, but it's many. But it's nonetheless to ultimately be one body. As the Lord allows, we will take this introduction to these ideas and bring them to Paul's letter to Titus and think about how that applied to the Cretan saints in Paul's day. And I think you'll find it very illuminating. And and you will see that Paul's letter is all about the behavior of Christ's body. And you'll see he has a lot of things to say. We'll be stressing these things as we go forward, but he says, this witness is true. Therefore, it's got to stop. Because if it doesn't, then there isn't a witness to Jesus on the island of Crete. And God placed his work of the Spirit on that island so that Jesus could be found on that island. Not me, not you, not the sum total of all of our different personalities. Jesus is building his church where he is manifesting himself in each location. That's what this is all about. Why don't you stand with me as we prepare our hearts for the communion of the bread and cup?